So, I'm so up. I, I don't know when this is gonna end. I have another 40 miles to ride. Like, I'm f I, what the f This is the Bike Pack Racing Podcast with Ezra Ward-Packard and Andrew Onerma. Welcome back to the Bike Pack Racing Podcast. I am your host, Ezra Ward-Packard, and this is episode 18. Our guest today has kind of stormed onto the bikepacking ultra-endurance scene before this year, never participated in any races. This year, he's been racking up some super solid results, a third place at the Stagecoach 400, and then another third place at the West Fjords Way Challenge. I forgot to say his name, Matt Paez. Matt, how's it going today? Very good. Uh, surviving here in Bend, Oregon. It's like 90 degrees. Got out for a little bike ride this morning and uh, keeping the legs up and getting ready for another 100-mile uh, mountain bike race tomorrow morning, uh, 5.30 a.m. Oh, damn. Okay. How long ago did you finish the West Fjords Way? Uh, let's see. Stage four finished on January 3rd. So two weeks. Just two about. weeks. Okay. July 3rd. You said January there. July, oh, right? Geez. Yeah, that shows. July 3rd. <laughs> Two weeks. Okay. And you're feeling pretty good, obviously, about to jump into a hundred mile mountain bike race. Is that is that how you have how your body has been responding to these efforts? Or like is this normal for you? How are you feeling about just doing a hundred miles full gas? Yeah, I I wouldn't say this is normal at all. Uh you know, I had signed up for this months ago and uh, West Fjords Way was already on the, the calendar, but I, I figured why not just take two weeks off and then go go test the legs with a little intensity and see how it goes. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Doing my classic internet stalking, popped up a few mountain bike results, a few cyclocross results. Let's wind the clock back. How do you get into cycling? How do you find yourself doing these crazy bikepacking races? Yeah, uh, so kind of grew up doing absolutely every single sport that came my way. Just, you know, seasons changing. There's always something to do when you're growing up. Uh, I was a pretty crazy kid, so I needed something to do at all times. So kind of always athletic, athletic background. I went to, I, I always rode a bike. You know, there's always jumping bikes. There was like kids in the neighborhood, BMX track stuff, but never, it never took over. It was always there. And then I went to school in San Francisco, was commuting by Vespa. I was hit by a car um, okay. and then, oh, totally okay. Like got up, totally fine, no injuries, but was therefore forced to ride my single speed to class, to work, back home, back to my second job. And then I was like, damn, I, I feel good. Like, I, I wonder how far I rode, get some, some junky iPhone app and track my miles and I do 17 miles and I was kind of blown away. Um, fast forward a couple months, I like get a pair of extra large bib shorts, uh, just because they're the only thing on the sale rack at like American cyclery in San Francisco. Nice. Uh, sent it with that and like my slip on bands and, uh, just got addicted, like used some weird app that probably doesn't exist anymore. And uh, did like a 30 mile ride, 40 mile ride. And then this is kind of interesting, like looking back because I, I knew I liked riding my bike. I didn't know if I wanted to like commit to it because I was always doing all this different shit. Um, but I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to tour. I'm going to tour from San Francisco down to San Diego. I think it was like, I don't know, 650 miles or something like that. Yep. Uh, did it alone with a tent, a sleeping bag and one gear and I don't even remember how long it took. I took like two rest days, but just like rode from sun up to sundown and just like figured it out. And I remember getting back down to San Diego where I grew up and was like, okay, I still like riding my bike. So I saved up some money and got like a giant TCR and it kind of just steamrolled from there. So for that, yeah, that was like early days. So for that first bike tour, you said single speed, like what was the gear setup? Because 
I'm thinking back to Andrew's kind of introduction to long distance bike travel. And he also was on a single speed and literally just had like a camping backpack where he would just shove all of his stuff. And I love that. Like, like I never did that. I had panniers and a rack when I first started, but just the idea that Mm -hmm. it is as simple as get a backpack, throw some stuff in the backpack, start riding somewhere. It doesn't have to be from San Francisco to San Diego. It could just be to a state park 20 miles away, but the entry point, sometimes it's, it seems like it's so high to get all the gear, but really you can just grab a backpack, throw a sleeping bag in it and rough it. And that's all you need. So like, what was that setup on the single speed? Uh, gear ratio. Couldn't tell you. Okay. Something middle of the road. I, I don't okay. even know. I wasn't, I didn't care about gear ratios until like mm-hmm. I had a real bike and people were talking about it. And I was like, Oh, I should probably pay attention to that. But, um, yeah, like electrical taped tent poles to my top tube. I did install a rear rack and I had some, uh, some fabric pannier bags, literally stuffed, like seams ripping. Um, didn't necessarily overpack, but like just huge sleeping bag, like just unnecessary stuff. Um, like, I don't know, a huge sweater. Like I didn't, I didn't have, I wasn't thinking about gear. I was like, I got a sweater, got my sleeping bag and it's not going to rain cause it's California. So there was nothing to worry about it. It was just like t-shirt bibs, the road. Nice. Nice. Love it. How many years ago was that? Uh, I think that was like 2013. Okay. So nine years ago or so. Yeah. So after that trip, you realized that you love cycling. Like what was the next step? Did you start getting into racing right away? Pursue more long distance stuff? What did that look like? Yeah, pretty quickly it turned into racing. I was kind of... I was always infatuated with bike racing. Like July, it was like, oh, the tour's coming on. I forgot about it. Like, I forgot that exists. But when July came around and tour was on, it was like kind of glued to the TV. And then I was like, I I didn't know how to break into that community. Like uh, growing up in SoCal, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Like you would see the weekend warriors and be pissed off that they're in the bike lanes, like on my way to surf. And that was kind of it. But once I got into cycling, um, I was looking for that community. I did a couple really weird airfield crits in like Irvine and like some, I don't even know what it was called in San Francisco, but I just get shelled out the back instantly. Like had no idea about group work or sitting in a draft. Um, But then I got the opportunity to move to Portland and that was... uh, like jumping in the fire i mean they had four different races going on every week that you could jump into so i i kind of cut my teeth in that and i i got lucky meeting the right people as well like i i talked to the right people on just a random ride up on skyline which is like the main artery in the west hill west of portland um yeah and just kind of jumped in Nice. So you currently work at a bike shop right now, correct? Yes. Yep. When did that kind of come in the picture where it was like, I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going to work on bikes. Like that's going to be the job. Yeah. So I I told you I got lucky and ran into the right people on Skyline in the West Hills. Um, Eddie Rogers and uh, Dylan, the, the Admiral, um, they were longtime Portland dudes. They were super tied in with the, the road racing. They started JVA, Jens Voigt's Army. They were okay. kind of like the early days of like Portland's uh, like comic relief, but serious road racing group. Okay. Um, some, some people may know about JVA. They like, they had wild kits and ripped off map high stuff. But I met these dudes, and they basically offered me a job. They were like, don't go to UBI. I'll teach you all that shit. And they were like, send me your resume. They worked for this company, Velotech, and I started just assembling bikes in a warehouse under Eddie. And it, yeah, from there. 
kind of escalated from there. Nice. Yeah. So heading into this year, I guess, did you do any other long distance bike travel after your big yeah. tour down the coast? You did? Okay. Like what did yeah, that look like? That, so it, in, it took the form of a couple different trips. Um, I did the Oregon Outback, I think in 2015 okay. with a, a group of buddies and we did it fairly fast. We did it from Cape Falls to Portland in four days. Okay. So we were doing pretty massive days in in the, the scheme of Outback. Um, how long and is then the, like one? How long is the Outback total? Out, uh, three sixty four from border okay. to border, and then you if you go to Portland, I think it adds another seventy five and a lot of climbing over Mount Hood. Okay. Um, and then another summer when I worked at Velotech with a coworker, he had like done a bunch of rando riding and we kind of just built up to this big route he had made that was 420 kilometers. Damn. And we just did that in one day. Um, started at midnight and finished the following day. You know, I think it was like 32 hours or something. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So but had... that, that was it really like up until this last year. Um, I was doing a lot of cross stuff, a lot of shorter XC racing, um, but I always liked that long effort. I It was just always in my back pocket, kind of. Yeah, and I guess that was kind of my next question, which was, what was the catalyst to decide to enter these longer races, longer challenges, longer events? First one was Stagecoach 400. Not really a race but also people are racing it kind of that gray area where it is just a group ride but people are going fast so what was the catalyst to jump into the bike pack racing scene i think it was just going with kind of what i liked to do what was fun i mean bike racing is, is tough the the day-to-day -to -day and like the, the focus on just how you're feeling it it kind of it was just draining on me i got a lot more fulfillment of even just planning a month out to do three giant days was way more fulfilling. And then, you know, just looking at these, you know, like loose events, like you said, was, um, you know, people get together and if people want to race it at the front, that's, that's awesome. It's motivating. Um, and just following it too. Like, it seems like there's a lot more exposure and it, it's, it's like the, the perfect mix is what really brought me there. Nice. So talking about burnout, are you still doing, are you still planning on doing cyclocross in the fall? Like you're doing a hundred mile mountain bike race, which like how's, what's your relationship with cycling now? Are you like fully, I switched over to the ultra scene or are you just kind of doing everything a little bit of, yeah. I, I think I've fully switched over. Okay. Uh, yeah, I did. I did one cross race last year, um, and it was it was hell. I even ran into like an old an old legend, you could say. His name's Marcel Rusenberger. He's like an old Swiss guy. He's national champ. He's raced Flanders and stuff. And he sees me before the race and goes, "I haven't I haven't seen you all year." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know." He's like, "You're fucked." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't done this. You, I do these long days now, but it, it's fun. I love the community. The, the community in Oregon is, is the best. It's, it's kind of like seeing family in a way. But um, no, I don't have any plans to do any shorter races. Got it. You've switched over. Yeah, that was definitely something I noticed where once I started going longer, my ability to just like pop into any random group ride and ride near the front in Flagstaff, especially, I try to go to the Saturday group ride and it's like, unless I'm absolutely flying, the legs are just not there. The minute I'm over zone three, it's all over. So mad props to the people yeah. that are able to kind of bounce back and forth between the really long, hard efforts and then just the short, snappy stuff like mad props, mad props. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so let's jump into Stagecoach 400. You finished third at Stagecoach. I talked with David, who I don't know why it popped up on my radar. It's just a road racer jumping into bikepacking and shot him an Instagram message. 
How do you uh, know David? Uh, I know David because I lived in Reno for about a year. Okay. Um, he, he, yeah, he was affiliated with the shop I was working at and just, you know, at the time I was strictly road racing. So I would see him at the drop ride every Saturday okay. when he was in town. And yeah, we just stayed in touch over the years and kind of, you know, when I saw he, that he had attempted an FKT the year before, um, that definitely, you know, the, the lights were blinking and I was like, Oh, that looks cool. And I, I grew up in that area as well. So when I knew he was going back, um, we kind of planned to try and make the trip together and make it, make it enjoyable for both of us, take some of the nerves out of it. Nice. So what was the mindset heading into stagecoach that first bikepacking race? Was it like you did very well, were you planning on riding super hard and racing or were you like, I'm more there for the experience. I'm trying to enjoy this. What did that look like? I definitely went into it kind of knowing some beta through David, but also, uh, I, I wanted to try my best. I mean, I, I come from that racing background. I, I didn't plan on sleeping. I, I knew there was enough, um, resupplies in, you know, throughout the route except on the tail end. Um, so I went into it wanting to, to push myself. Nice. For sure. Jump into that race. How, how'd it go down? Javier, crazy strong effort, setting that fastest known time, coming out of nowhere, which was awesome to see. Uh, who finished in, do you remember who finished in second? Was it Abdullah? Yes, Abdullah Mustafa. Okay. Break down the race. Um, how'd that first experience go? Yeah, uh, it, you know, very neutral rollout, lots, lots of chatting in, in those first couple miles. And then classically, as soon as it turns into double track and dirt, it, it just gets spicy real quick. I rode up with David, Javier, and um, another maybe two or three that were kind of in this group. Um, and we were, we were pushing the pace. Like, we just yeah. wanted to get a gap. And like, kind of be comfortable and not have to feel like you're looking over your shoulder, I guess. Um, and I definitely paid for that. It was hot, and like the nerves were going. And also, I just wanted to kind of be safe through initial chunky descent stuff. And then I, I pretty much rode alone until mile 100. A couple people passed me. I was dealing with some cramps. It was super hot. Um, I found David at mile 100 or so. We rode along, David and I, and Jesse, Jazzy Boo, all through San Diego. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was good because, you know, the sun went down and there's cars everywhere. You're in an urban city. Yep. Uh, you still kind of got to, the route is telling you where to go. Meanwhile, you have to heed to cars and street bikes. So it was nice to have a group through there. And then David and I just continued on through the night, kind of not, I didn't look at tracking whatsoever. I was purely going by feel. I didn't care about the placements whatsoever at that point. Um, just trying to stay comfortable. And then, you know, it, I have ridden through the night on my own, but completely different when there's, you know, other people on course. It's a very motivating factor, I would say. Yeah. Which is which is kind of also why I really like these types of races because you can go ride it anytime, but when there's a lot of people on course pushing it as well, it's that's definitely a draw for the bike back racing. But anyways, back to stagecoach. Yeah. I rode through the night. I eventually needed some sleep. So there was a resupply opening at 6am caught two hours, continued on most of the climbing that next morning. And then, uh, David dropped out there, I don't know, around mile 240 or something. And then as soon as he scratched, it was kind of me dropping into the desert into like the heat of day two. I was really happy that I got some sleep because if I hadn't into that desert section, it would have been a heck of a lot worse. Super exposed. Wind kind of just everywhere you can't hide from it no shade sand is the worst thing ever washboard jeep roads that that second half is 
is very tough. Yeah. Um, like the first 250 miles fly by. Yeah. It's, it's fairly easy. There's a couple sections that test you in your mountain bike, but that second half is like, I, I don't know, like, I kind of remember it's, it was, it was full, full Zen mode at that point, really like just alone. I knew nobody was around and I knew no one was going to like ride up on me. So I was just staying comfortable. And then, yeah, that, that second night got pretty tough as well with some hike a bike and you're walking in water for a mile or so. Eventually I caught Scotty Lechuga and Jazzy Boo. Jazzy Boo had a flat. He was messing with it. It was like 3 a.m. or something. Scotty was having some issues with keeping food down and water. And I just kind of rode up to him, said hi, gave Jazzy Boo some sealant, and said I got to keep going. And yeah, I was just, from, from then on, it was survival, pure survival up to the finish. Um, I had an idea that I was up high because I knew Scotty was in the lead for sure with the women, and I know she was putting down a big time, like, Yep. I know she's legit as they get, like, going into it. I was like, dang, she, she's she got some backing and a lot of experience. Like, she's done Silk Road. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, okay, I got Scotty. Like, I'm, I'm in a good spot. And uh, I had finally reached the pavement. It was, like, 7 a.m. I knew I was close to Idlewild, and the car pulled up. And they were like, are you, are you Mateo? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, you're in third. And I was like head explode like smiles all the emotions and i was like what i couldn't believe it so then it gave me a ton of energy and i just blasted through the last two road climbs and yeah my mom surprised me at the finish and javier was like the first one to give me a high five and he was he was stoked and just like the whole the whole back to the community man it was like this this is it so as a first event like welcoming as ever Aside from a good ride, the route was amazing. Like, the result doesn't matter. I had fun. Yep. And, like, I mean, it's great to get third. Like, I'm stoked on my ride, but, like, it could have gone a lot worse. Yeah. I don't think it could have gone better. So I'm just happy that it it was a, a positive experience because, like, for David, good friend of mine, super strong rider, was not a good experience for two years in a row. So... Yeah, I, I, I got lucky for sure. Yeah, and that's the fine line of bike pack racing is you can be in much better shape, better prepared that next year, and things might just not go your way. Like there's just so many factors Absolutely. that can go wrong that it's it's what makes it fun is it's not just a fitness competition. Like there's so much else that goes into it. So finishing Stagecoach 400 was odyssey of the vog on the radar already or were you just hooked like i want to do something else this summer it was yeah it was it was kind of on the radar um okay. having met having met ben handrick and abdullah who are both oregonians um ben ben just threw the offer out there like come do odyssey so you know it's just an internet search away and you've got all the data on the route and yep. who's done it and what's what. And yeah, I, I just, you know, plugged it in to my calendar and was like, that's, that fits perfect. But yeah, it, I mean, very quickly once I did stage coach and had that experience, um, instantly I was back home, like, okay, what, what can I plan for next? So you were hooked after that stage coach experience. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Most definitely. So talk about Odyssey. Here's an example I know for you of a bikepacking race that did not go very well. I don't remember what I was doing that weekend, but I wasn't able to dot watch as intently as I normally do. And I saw you reached out earlier and I was keeping an eye on you, keeping an eye on kind of everyone. Once again, like that Oregon scene, Oregon Pacific Northwest scene, a little bit foreign to me. Like I don't, haven't been out there so i don't know the terrain don't know all the riders talk about odyssey yeah so odyssey of the vog vog is a valley of the giants um okay. at 
aptly named after a region I think is that is in the Sayusla National Forest. Forgive me if that is wrong. I think it's Sayusla or Tillamook, one of the two. Um, but it is an old growth section with just these massive trees. Okay. Uh, but the route goes up and over the Oregon Coast Range, which is very steep. Uh, tons of logging activity from, jeez, uh, probably 30s and 40s. Okay. Um, so these these roads are carved in, uh, very old, very steep. Not a lot of traffic ever because they just go to nothing. Yeah. Um, but the creator Ben Hendrick built the route with a friend of his, Seth Dubois, and um, it's, it's a real challenging one. Even if the weather's good, I think the climbing would get you, but for that particular Grand Depart weekend, um, it rained for two days straight. Oh, damn. Okay. Cold up at the high elevations, followed by 2,000 foot descent back to valley floor. So it was like overheat, descend for 20 minutes, do it again, mixed with 60 miles riding north on the coast with just gale force headwinds. Um, it, it wasn't the most enjoyable. I think like five people finished. Oh, shit. Okay. Out of out of uh, close to 40, I think, starters. A war of attrition race. And it's 350 Absolutely. miles or so? Yeah, 350. Okay. And are these miles like the road conditions? Are they like super rideable gravel bring a gravel bike or mountain bike recommended does that also play a factor it's it's gravel bike all the way okay. there's there's some good mix of pavement but um there there are some chunky uh climbs but definitely gravel gravel bike nice and so where in this race did you end up pulling out uh let's see i pulled out like 12 13 hours in, uh, kind of the midway point, which is the last resupply as well before kind of heading into a stretch of 100 miles of, of zero resupply opportunity. Uh, but it was mile 215, I think, in Tillamook City. The sun was down for about an hour. I was saturated, cold, had cool hands for 10 plus hours. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's all about managing lows. I've, I've learned over these couple events and the lows never improved. So okay. it was, yeah, it, you know, I, I was going the route where I was going to get a hotel room in Tillamook City and just finish the ride the next day, get an opportunity to dry out, kind of forget about a result or whatever, just enjoy the ride at that point. But Memorial Day weekend on the Oregon coast, every single hotel room was booked. Okay. Um, made a few phone calls, nothing, and then was able to hitch a ride with uh, another rider, Stephen, who rode to Tillamook as well, and then pulled the plug. But it was smart. It was it was a smart decision, you know. Like I, I give it up to the dude Tom who continued on and rode through the night with not too much gear, but. He he was gung ho, man. He was excited, and he crushed it. So good for him. So with you have this super. I guess one of the questions going back to stagecoach for Odyssey. Were you in more of a racing mindset, looking at track leaders, or did you kind of approach it the same way, where you're just out there for the experience, not going to focus on the result? Yeah, that, that's actually a great question. I think I psyched myself out a little bit because I was very, I was riding that high of like getting a result for sure. And like, there were so many trials and tribulations of getting down to the start of stagecoach. Like my bike didn't show up almost in time from my flight to Reno and like just the travel as well and like staying in a crappy hotel the night before. Um, I think the fact that I could drive two and a half hours west to the start in my van, sleeping in my comfortable bed 
and then start a race and ride back to my van and sleep again sounded great. You know, like I didn't have to worry about where I was going to get some sleep after a huge 400 mile effort. You know, like I was, all the things were in place, but, um, yeah, short answer to that question. My mindset was not the same. I was like going back to overthinking about a race effort, like how I can, how I can do the best and, and be up at the top spot. But I, I think with this last event at Westfjord's way too, is like going in, just have fun, enjoy it. And I think there's a lot of, um, payoff there just for, for so many reasons, you know, I mean, I'm sure you could agree on that because psyching yourself out, waste a lot of energy stressing about things it doesn't matter you know it's still like what i know how to do at the bare bones of it and if you're not having fun what's the point like in my mind so much of it comes down to the fact that you're going to get a good result if you just keep on pedaling your bike like if you don't when you overthink things that's when you start planning and inevitably in bike pack racing things don't go to plan and if you're so hung up on being at this location at this time or this is how I should feel doing this effort. That's when things just go off the rails. So yeah, every I, time. Yeah. Very much relate to that with my last few results. For sure. West Fjord's way was that that's a little bit more, definitely a bigger commitment than Odyssey where you can just like drive the van. <laughs> hey, yeah. have you raced internationally? Like how that one come on the radar and what was the motivation about, taking the trip over there because super cool first time event for the listeners that aren't aware it was developed. It was developed. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you know exactly who developed it, but last year, uh, Lael Wilcox, uh, Lael's wife, Rue, Payson McAlvin, Payson's, I'm not sure if they're engaged, uh, Nicole and then Chris Picard went out there and they went and toured the route and did an absolutely fantastic job documenting it. Payson had daily podcasts and Rue with her amazing photography and there was a film that came out of it. Fast forward a year later and it was once again, this kind of gray area where they call it a challenge, but I'm guessing people were riding pretty hard. There were results at the end. You finished third out of the men, got a super sick trophy out of it. So winding back, do you know who developed the route? Yes, I believe it was Chris who kind of put everything together on a map Okay. and was familiar with these roads working. Then a American dude named Tyler Wacker, who is one of the owners of cycling, cycling West Fjords, okay. as well as the West Fjords Way Challenge. Tyler was the first person to ride the route in completion. He is a major part in organizing the race. Um, he initially moved there as a student for the university there in Isafjordur. And he, on that trip with Lael, Rue, Chris, Payson, and partners, everyone involved, Tyler and Lene are two of the co-race organizers, directors. Okay. They met them on the route. Lael and Chris have this idea you know, while they're all together, we should, there should be a race here. There should be a race where there's these cultural spots that you can essentially clock out of or gain points for stopping at. And Tyler and Lene were there and like that idea came up and they literally grabbed it and put all the balls into motion with sponsors, website, getting racers, creating uh, some scholarships, funds for BIPOC racers and it was it was a super amazing first time event for yeah first time organizers as well yeah the, it was kind of a, a big group project essentially like from from what I got and that that place is 
next level. I mean, the word epic, I feel like, gets thrown around a lot, but epic is, like, the way to describe that region, that country as a whole, too. But, yeah, um, I initially met Tyler. This is a pretty funny story. I, I met Tyler Wacker um, over Craigslist selling a bike. I He was touring across the States, like, over COVID, he got accepted to this university in Isafirder. I sold him this rock hopper that I'd painted with Surly Fork, all these racks. I had built it up uh, to like ride up the ski hill to go ride to ski type thing. Nice. He bought it from me because he's like, oh, this is the perfect bike. I'm moving to Iceland. I want a tour from Keflavik Airport all the way up to my school in the West Fjords. So we coordinated tons of emails, tons of back and forth while he's touring across the country. He, I ship him in the bike to Boston. He doesn't even open the box and then flies to Reykjavik with it to then tour like, I don't even know, 2,000 kilometers up to the school he's going to. Damn. So instantly I was like, this guy's psycho. I like, I gotta be friends with this dude. And he's, you know, riding my bike across Iceland to go to school, like without even opening the box and trusting me and all this stuff. So fast forward a year or so, and, you know, he's organizing this huge race, which is right up my alley with some ultra endurance, super long stages. And when all that media came out in the release of the race, I was like on the line with him instantly, like, hey, I know this is going to be popular. Can I get an entry? And uh, yeah, just pulled the trigger right there. Hell yeah, that's awesome. Super cool. Yeah, let's dive into the race, dive into the experience. It seems like you were in Iceland a few days before, hanging out in Reykjavik. Go into it, man. Yeah. I don't really have a question. Tell me about it. Yeah, I'm dude. fascinated. Uh, I've followed Chris yeah. for years. Um, back when I was a film student, watched some Icelandic films that were filmed in Iceland, and it just seems like one of those places that is absolutely otherworldly. So talk about it. Yeah. Otherworldly, for sure. So I flew in uh, like eight days before the race starts. Tyler Wacker also owns and operates the only bike shop in the West Fjords region called West Fjords Bikes. It's in Isafjordr. It's in an old fish freezer, like right on the docks. Oh, damn. Okay. You open up, <laughs> yeah, you open up this slider door and you just have views of the fjords and you can see the one plane a day come in and all the fishing boats unloading whenever they're at the dock. But this bike shop is amazing. It's like a labor of love. Uh, as soon as summer starts, all the locals there, them, their families, all have bikes. They ride bikes around town to do whatever, no school, it's summertime. Um, so he's got business, and all these bikes get snowed on or left outside, or, you know, they're, they're living on the ocean so they need cables and housing and chains probably every six months okay so i went over there a couple days early worked with tyler in the bike shop met a bunch of locals nice. um it was it was so great it was it was the best best bike shop work i've done in a long time like it was so cool we're only open from four to six p.m but like two hours and like a dozen locals come come in needing their bike tuned up okay that's awesome. Um, but then, like, yeah, the race, it was it was cool being there early. Like, the hype of all these people coming from all around the world to this tiny 2,000-person village uh, in the north end of the West Fjords. It was, it was electric, man. Like, all the men and women there, we stored all the bikes and bike boxes in the fish freezer bike shop. And uh, it was kind of the hub. But, yeah, the race started at, like, 7 a.m., and there was all these townspeople there in this little city square. I didn't know how it was going to play out because this race had some interesting rules. Yeah. Yeah, real quick. Can you just go into the uniqueness of this challenge? Like, what was the structure of it, the distance? I know there were four stages. Kind of talk about that because it definitely wasn't, it's almost like a gravel stage race in a way. I think that would yeah. be like the, uh, what's the name of the stage? The 
It's the Oregon Coast. Uh, oh, what's the oh. name of that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder. Yep, the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder, which is one of the first very popular gravel stage races. So yeah, just talk about like the structure of this race before we really dive into it. Right. So four stages. Every stage had mandatory cultural connection stops. So the organizers would set up a a flag that was marked, depending on the stage, very easy to find. But you essentially had to stop at two of these cultural connection spots every stage. But there were upwards of six, sometimes more opportunities for these stops. Uh, these cultural connection sites were historical landmarks, uh, museums, hot pots, which are the geothermal hot pools, uh, cafes, and like the cafes were, were always kind of a mix of not just a straight up cafe in, in Iceland. These places were so remote. It was like cafe and thrift shop or cafe and bed and breakfast or like a full full blown restaurant and gas okay. station. But everything is so remote there that like they kind of needed to implant some resupply options. So some of those cultural connection sites were food resupply stops. Okay. But uh, it was it was definitely um, something that I've never had to do in a race. Um, but it definitely played an important part in experiencing that region because it's so low traffic. It was a good opportunity to stop and get out of the wind or the rain and warm up because... It was, I don't know, 45 degrees Fahrenheit the whole time, sometimes colder. So, yeah, that, that was a factor, but it was, it was also a, a race. It definitely wasn't your typical bikepacking race scenario. Um, from, from day one, like a, a road race team or a gravel race team from Reykjavik, they were, they were hammering. They were really good at riding in the wind. They were all pretty sizable dudes. They could take poles and echelon and north sit. And like, they were going. It was it was a road race. Like, okay. It, it yeah. It was. This is so bizarre. I love this. It's like there's yeah. these mandatory cultural stops, but then there's an Icelandic road team that's like, <laughs> this is our culture. Why do we need to stop here? Where I'm like. I'm so curious about the race dynamics and like you personally, were you, that's so difficult because it's like, do I stay with this group and I can ride with this group and not fight the wind or do I enjoy myself and stop at all these cool places? Like, yeah, crazy dude. Crazy. Yeah. First, first day, you know, the nerves were high. And I remember the first cultural connection stop is like this beautiful turf house called Litley Byer, And they have, waffles and rhubarb jam and hot coffee and like on this perfectly grassy hillside just overlooking a fjord and it was like it was so fast take a take a photo get up the hill like order your waffles and i remember the the icelandic guys were there you know like they speak english but you know people weren't like conversating at that point yet it was like give me my give me my waffle i'm gonna go and those guys were just like quick and you know another group who was who was there too were just like riding fast but just still having a lot of fun for example like like Lael and uh Magali Rochette and David and Chaz and Hannah and a couple they they were all like enjoying it having fun and then get back on your bike so i kind of that first day i was kind of in the middle like i got caught with all the Icelandic dudes kind of suffering. And I knew I was going to pay for it because there's four, three more days of this. Yep. And I, I know how this goes. So fast forward a little bit and there's another cultural spot and I knew it was a restaurant and I needed some real food because I was just burning energy. Like I would get stuck on the back and, and chase and like just sit in the wind working too hard. So I stopped and got soup and just clocked out with a cultural stop. I had lunch alone. It was great. And then I was back 
I then the rest of stage one, I, I rode completely solo, but at my own pace, comfortable. Yeah, just like I don't even know where I where I came in to you know in cumulative time results on day one. Um, but the race as well, like the the fact that you could finish the stage and get some sleep and have a good meal was pretty amazing. So for definitely recovery. So for the actual like racing portion of it, you race to this cultural stop and then the timer stops at that cultural stop. And then once you get rolling again, it starts again. So theoretically you could stop at the cultural stop for two hours, kind of like, uh, what would be a good example of this kind of like an enduro stage in a way where you're riding from like stage to stage. Is that kind of how the structure worked? Yeah, definitely. Uh, as, the days went by or you know it, it only took a few cultural stops to kind of get the hang of it you take a timestamp selfie as you're entering and then as you're leaving and then that time gets deducted from your race time okay. um so and some people uh a local dude got got the award for most time spent at cultural connections which was pretty funny i think it was nice. like 13, 14 hours or something, which is hilarious over the time because I think I spent like a cumulative eight, eight hours. Okay. But I was, I was in no rush to leave these places either. Like I, it's hard. I mean, you know how it is. It's it's hard to sit down for an hour and eat and then get back on your bike. Like it's almost harder to get going again. Yep. For sure. But like from a race perspective, uh, I kind of pick and you know, picked and chose like when I was going to push the pace. Day day four was a little different, but like across the board, I definitely stopped as much as I wanted to. I took a ton of photos. I didn't like skip anything. I yeah, I I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was amazing. But then to like ride this amazing route, get timed, and then also kind of like race some old Euro dudes. It was it was super fun. And it's crazy that that was the climate within the race, right? Is it is this like cultural experience because I was following along the race and I did not look at results once, right? I don't know if you guys had track leaders. I was not paying attention to that aspect at all. I was on Instagram watching your stories, watching Lael's stories, watching Rue's stories, watching Hannah's stories, who's been on the podcast before, like there was just so much like good content that I really did feel like I was in a way at the race. And I'm like, this is such a cool concept because I feel like one of the really big discussions happening in bikepacking is that balance between just like racing and experiences. And obviously I'm the host of the bikepack racing podcast. So I really love the racing aspect of it. But at the same time, I love touring. And I've talked about that before where in a way, I think that they can coexist naturally. But I love when someone like takes the initiative to say, no, you don't have an option. You have to stop at this really cool cafe and have a meal where given the option, if I've have already eaten or have my resupply, I might just bomb by that experience and totally miss out on that. So I think it's really cool what they did and hopefully we see more of it. Right. And in my mind, I'm just thinking of all these really cool places where, and just the idea of like, it also seems a little bit more accessible for the fact that it's not a true bikepacking race. You guys didn't have fully loaded bikes. So I'm guessing there was some system of dropping your luggage off and it got moved to the next location. So you're riding an unweighted bike, which allowed you to do these massive distances. You got to sleep in a bed indoors every night. And so you just get to have this like really cool experience, but also to do it all together in a race format is so hard if you're just like organizing a group ride or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was immersive. It was enjoyable. It was like the, the lows were there, but it was nothing even close to like the low of, you know, not knowing what side of the street you're going to sleep on or what, where you're going to hide or what toilet you're going to sleep in or, if you're gonna if you're gonna sleep so it was like 
that was a huge stress relief because you knew that where you were going to get to, there was going to be something cold to drink and somewhere to sleep and some good food. Like that was a ton of it. But then like the, the camaraderie amongst the group that you found yourself in was huge. But then also seeing the other people like come in past midnight and like even later than midnight, but like the people who'd come in super late and get up the next morning and like still do the next day because whether it is like they were stopping at cultural connection sites too much or they were just their pace wasn't high enough for the distance. I mean, some people signed up for this thing that like started riding at the beginning of this year which okay. is insane to me because it was like people who've been riding bikes for no more than eight months to like Whale Wilcox yeah, and Magley Rochette and like Boss Rotgens from the Netherlands. Like he's completed a ton of these big bike packing races. So like to sit down with people who are like super fresh at dinner and talk about how amazing their day was or how insanely shelled they were. It was like, so cool to just kind of share the smiles and and all the laughs about like the birds attacking you and shit like that like it was iceland so there's all this weird stuff happening and like it was just insane but so so cool and special to get to be a part of it it's crazy talking about it because i have kind of just like come back and i'm back in my own back to work shit so yeah uh you kind of just glossed over birds attacking you. Uh, details, please. What kind of birds attack you in Iceland? I know that's a thing with like yeah. magpies in Australia that I've heard old teammates talk about. Icelandic birds attacking you. Please elaborate. Yes. I, I'm pretty sure it's the Arctic tern. They are a more athletic seagull, I would say. A more but... athletic seagull. I like that. <laughs> yeah. They're... Uh... They're ground nesters. They're super territorial. But if you go, I mean, the every the course was filled with different changing landscapes. But anytime you're in kind of like this somewhat lush farm, farmy valley, they were on each side of the road. And as soon as they hear you roll through, they pop up into the air, squawking like pterodactyls and kind of fly in front of you fly above you and then dive bomb your helmet. And they don't like, they don't do much, but they'll just run into you and then fly away. But they're, they're constantly there. So like, as soon as I heard about that happening, I was told like, you'll see the shadow above you and they're going to dive bomb you. So it was like, anytime you see a shadow in the road, it was like, all right, get out of the saddle or like cruise across the lane. So they can't, get your helmet but i think it's bound to happen at least once i feel like everyone got an arctic turn either dive bombing or or uh shitting on you damn that's that's crazy so do you think this is a race challenge that you think you're going to go back to is this something that you're already thinking about doing again in the future yeah i i think so you think i think so i i mean aside from having done it already, like just going back to experience in a different way. I, I think that this event would benefit well from a pure bike pack ultra style rules where there is no drafting and you can ride the whole thing in completion and skip these stage finishes if you like. Okay. I think I mean, I, I had communicated with Tyler, one of the organizers, that if there was a separate category of that, I think it would bring another cool facet of, you know, the event within itself. I think they also, there there was also talk, you know, about singularly setting aside like stage four, which was by far the most challenging, most remote, most beautiful um, into like a single day race within. So people who weren't necessarily interested in the 960 kilometer full push, they could do a single day full on gravel race style. Okay. So, I mean, the, 
the things are in place and it's so remote and it's kind of anything's on the table. And I believe that Iceland and the Westward in general are super stoked on bicycle tourism coming there because it doesn't burn any gas and cyclists like to spend money on food and drinks. So it brings a lot of money to these tiny little businesses that are, you know, like impossible to get to six, seven, eight months out of the year. I'm pretty sure. I mean, that place is so far out there that in the summer months, I think they can really benefit from these types of things happening. Very cool. Is this, obviously there was the group last year that toured it. They did have a lot of like know-how. Chris has spent so much time in Iceland. Is this a route that an individual could tour by themselves, fly into Iceland and just kind of do it during those summer months? Is it that accessible or does it take a little bit more logistical know-how? It is very accessible, actually. The Cycling Westfjords group that Tyler and Lene and Dora, who is Icelandic from Isafjordur, I believe, uh, they have this passport route system that you can basically get access to some of these businesses or lodges and get a, a deal for campsites and lodging if you are basically part of this Cycling Westfjords group, per se. But they also offer a ton of support and beta for, from like getting bike stuff to storing your things in Isafjordur to um, kind of emergency status things a group of seven was from minneapolis was touring the route the week before the event started nice and you know like a big storm rolled in out of nowhere and they needed some beta on like how they could safely get over this mountain pass so there is kind of a fine line of like you could totally go and and wing it but like you are in iceland you are remote crazy shit happens constantly in terms of the weather so Cycling West Spirits is in place to kind of be support for that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's open to anyone, but getting that little bit of help from that group of stoked cyclists and race directors now, and just locals, um, it's a trust, trustworthy, uh, group there for sure. Yeah. And I think it's only just going to enhance the experience, especially a country like Iceland where, Good luck learning Icelandic, right? Like there's definitely yeah. going to be some some things that you want presented to you rather than you just winging it. So very cool. Very cool. Anything else that you want to touch on in terms of the Westfjords Challenge? Any other crazy experiences? Oh, here's a question I had. So you're mm. talking about this Reykjavik road team just kind of crushing it. You still mm. managed to finish in third place. Like, how do you pull that off? What was the racing dynamic that let you have this awesome result? Yeah, so I, I mean, like, throughout, I it kept saying I was in, like, eighth or ninth place uh, going into, like, stage three and four. I, every day I kind of rode with, with a group for, I would say, 50% of it, um, just, like, super long stretches. Uh, I, I rode with Lael, Magley, David, Hannah Simon, and Chaz, and then a few others, Boss, Rotkins was in there. And, you know, the, the group was always changing and people doing different things. But, like, for the most part, I would be with them. And then, you know, I would get that, like, urge to be like, oh, yeah, this is, I'd, I'd like a good time. So I'd be like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ride hard into the finish. And I would do, like, a three hours solid, just like, I don't even know what I was pushing, no power meter, uh, but I was working, you know, I was like, all right. I, I remember like I was just left the cultural connection, like ate a bunch of cake and a coffee and riding with that group. And I look over at Hannah and I was like, all right, I, I got to earn this. And I just like take off and, and work for it. But stage four was definitely where it, it came around. Like, the the race talk kind of started happening um it was funny lail wrote about it in the radivist article where she talks about 
having a chat with the guy Arntor, who ended up winning, who is on part of that Reykjavik team, but she kind of touches on, she hit the front and there was a gap forming and he instantly rode up to her and shared some words saying, are you in a rush to get to the first stop? And she looked over with a smile and was like, I'm just having fun riding my bike. And like Magali behind was like, oh, that's so rude. I can't believe he said something like that. And it was like, it was kind of like the race was on, like, who's going to attack? Like people were like, because race stage four starts at midnight and it instantly starts with a 2000 foot climb backed by a short descent and then another super pitchy climb. So people were kind of like looking around. And uh, I rode that whole first, I don't know, 50 or so miles with um, Arntor Thomas from Denmark and Marcus from Germany. And I knew they were all up close in the front there. And then after a cultural stop at Dinyandi Waterfall, they had left. They stopped, warmed up, left really quickly, maybe 25, 30 minutes before I did. And I just left at my pace, rode, warmed up, got onto the the legendary Svalvoger Road, which was built by some local dude who lived out there that literally carved it into this hillside with his tractor. It's like cobblestone-y. There's eight or nine river crossings. It's exposed. There's like cliffs over you, birds everywhere. But... Once I got onto this section, I knew what it was, and I did, you know, I just did my effort. I rode my bike. I ended up catching those three leaders who left 25 minutes before me. Oh, damn. Okay. Caught them. I caught them in the roughest section. I don't know what pace they were riding, but they were always riding strong. I caught them and then ended up kind of riding harder once I caught them because they were like, oh, shit. So everyone was kind of like, there was no room to make moves. It was just really tight on a cliff, wind. And then as soon as we turned this peninsula, you know, the wind changes as soon as you change direction too. And then there was kind of tailwind. And there were these super steep, pitchy climbs and descents. And I bombed a couple descents and turned around and they weren't there anymore. So... I knew there was a cultural connection spot, I don't know, 15 miles ahead or so. And I knew I had a tailwind the whole way because you can see the town at the bottom of the fjord. At this point, stage four, I'm, I'm kind of aware, like, oh, God, I'm going to have to ride all the way down as far as I can see where the fjord ends. I know the town's at the bottom because they all build those kind of bigger little town villages at the bottom of the fjord to hide from the weather coming off the ocean so i put my head down and just go and this was like the classic race scenario where i was like oh i'm gonna get some time you know i was like tailwind the road's improving i'm off this crappy tractor road and uh i get to the cultural connection and it's early they haven't opened yet but i still take the photo because the flag's there i was probably there for five ten minutes have a coffee i'm sitting there and thomas Arntor and Marcus come in and Marcus is instantly pissed off at me. He's like, why did you attack? I was, I was messing with my computer. Uh, you know, if he like, he was upset. He's like, if you did that, if you did that in, in Germany, you, you blah, 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 get, get kicked out. And I was like, well, I mean, this is a race. Like, I, I didn't even have a response. I was just like, okay. Uh, but he was pretty mad, and I don't think the other guys were too mad, but he was also like, the one thing I remember that he really said passionately was, if uh, if we really wanted to, we could have caught you. We didn't care. Like, I was like, oh. But at the end, at the, at the awards thing, day four, and I ended up, I think I won day four. I, I passed them, and after that last, cultural connection side i did the last two climbs like into headwind it was pretty tough and but i knew i was close and i just found that that zen my legs didn't hurt i like rode through it and i was just happy to like complete that loop because i knew it was close you know there's like that you just get 
an extra push every single time. Nice. Um, but yeah, that, that last day was when the real kind of race feelings came in because I saw those dudes who left and I knew I was feeling good and I knew the hardest part was still to come. So I was like kind of fired up about doing, doing the race thing again, but it was like, it was the perfect event across the board because it wasn't all race all the time. But back to that idea, the, uh, the Reykjavik team was motivated. They worked hard. I think they all knew each other more or less. There was a couple teammates and then dudes, they all knew, but like back to day one, I was one of the only people in that group, like trading off in the front and they're all speaking to each other and I can't understand anything. And I was like, kind of like, damn, these guys, these guys are all working together and it's, they're drafting and this, this isn't a, you know, unsupported bike packing race. And I was kind of like, kind of sour about it a bit. Cause I was like this, you know, they're just gaining time and they're gonna, they're gonna smash it. But to be like within two hours of that group come day four, it was, it was apparent that it was just purely based on terrain and weather and variability. I would consider it like, you know, ultra endurance style because it was so pressing um, and exposing. Yeah. Dude, what a cool event. What a cool experience. Like, honestly, you have me like hyped up on it. Like I'm, how do I get out to Iceland? How do I afford the plane ticket out to Reykjavik and up to the West Fjords way? And this sounds like so much fun. Like it sounds really like, at least on paper, like the perfect combination of this super cool cultural experience and riding your bike really, really hard, which is what I love. So, yeah, it was perfect. Also just shout out because like, I don't know, there was, there was a lot of names there and people riding hard. And aside from like really focusing on the race, uh, the friendships, like for example, Hannah Simon, she got second. Um, she crushed it. She was wearing a t-shirt the whole time, practically while everyone is in like leg warmers and coats and gloves and neck buffs and ear covers. And she's just like ripping along with a smile, not even caring where she finishes and then pulls in at the end, beating Magali and with a smile on her face with Lael. It was great. Which is absolutely wild because Magali, I think she's won. Anyway, she raced on the cliff women's pro team had this kind of prolific career on the mountain bike transitioned full-time to cyclocross i'm pretty sure multiple time national canadian cyclocross champion has been up there in world cups has been up there in the world championships i'm not sure if she's won a world cup i'm uncertain about that but she's been on the podium i know that at least absolute yeah. badass and then lale so good for hannah good for hannah that's awesome <laughs> yeah, and I'm, for sure really i'm sure guessing hannah was having more fun than anyone this sounds right up hannah's alley so that's awesome i think Very so cool yeah awesome dude that's all i've got anything else you want to touch on i feel like i should let you go so you can get ready for 100 miles of mountain biking tomorrow oh shit i forgot about that <laughs> it'll be great it'll be great just bring in the just come in with that West Fjords mindset and you'll crush yeah. it. Mile 50. Uh, the first 50 miles is going to suck. Mile 50 and, and under or over should should go by like a breeze. But it's in my backyard. I'm, I'm racing from home, so it'll be fine. Awesome. Dude, thanks for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ezra. Thank you. This has been episode 18 of the Bike Pack Racing Podcast. Mm-hmm.